Welcome back to the 149th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. And today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including the Fed will now have access to your bank transactions if your banks opt into the new Fed Now program. A article talking about how the American or the average American's growth of income and wealth is slow compared to the rest of the world. And an article talking about how we escape this slide into irrelevance as we get older. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So, where do you draw the line with privacy? You know, a lot of us who live on the internet or in the internet age, we give a lot of information out and we're willing to give a lot of information out. Is your date of birth too much? Is your address too much? What about your banking information? It feels as though that we are willing to give out a lot of information for the benefits that we get from these services, but at some point it feels like we're violating privacy. And is that line continuing to move further and further down the road for the average American? Where do you draw the line? And how concerned are you about privacy going forward in this era where information and data is everything that companies are looking for, especially about you? Because when the service is free, your data is what they're selling and monetizing. All right, let's jump to our first story that comes from Fee Stories. What's wrong with Fed now? Everything. So when I first read this article, I was, I was not necessarily too pleased. One of the reasons is one of the banks that's opting into this program is my bank. And I am not okay with the FedNow program, the Federal Reserve, the National Bank, essentially, the one that makes all the monetary policy decisions. I'm not okay with their having my information, if they so please. Now, do I really think that they're going to go in and read my stuff and find something that's a problem? No, not at all. But it is one thing where I, I don't care. I don't care if I am a squeaky clean wheel, I have no grease, which I mean, in that case, grease is probably a good thing, but I have no blemishes on my record. I'm not doing anything illegal. I'm not doing anything that would be untoward or would draw negative attention, but I just don't want the government to have access to that sort of information. Imagine what they can do with your spending habits. What if they see that you really like Starbucks coffee? What if they really they see that you really like diet soda, that you're constantly buying diet sodas from different stores, which is something that I do. I'd probably drink three diet sodas a day, maybe a little bit too much sometimes. But what if they were to say, uh, well, we don't think that that is actually a healthy practice, so we're going to talk to your medical provider because, you know, at the end of the day, we see that this is an unhealthy habit. We're going to talk to your insurance agency and say that maybe Alex has a, a higher risk of blah, blah, blah disease because of these transactions. Now, I know that's far off. I know that that is a crazy hyperbolic statement. And it may seem to some people who don't necessarily care too much about politics that they're like, why, why would they ever do that? But let me ask you this question. If we move towards a system, which we have been doing for the last few years, which is ever more talking about having a government-based healthcare alternative like they have in the UK, Scotland, a lot of European countries, 
what also might happen is we start might start passing more laws in order to restrict the amount of unhealthy things that our population has access to because it's no longer the private companies that are taking on the burden of your unhealthiness, but it is the government. So you can see how this program alone may not seem too bad, but with in tandem with the power that government has, the power to coerce, the power to change how we live our lives because we give over some of our freedoms in order to keep the other ones that we find so essential, I would list privacy at the top of that list, and I don't want that one getting violated. I do not want that one getting taken away from me personally. Privacy, of course, is the thing that allows us to operate without having to share all of our information, without having to live in a big brother world where you can't hide your thoughts. Maybe you really don't like something that your friend's talking about, and maybe you support a different cause behind the scenes. You give money to that. Are you going to necessarily tell them that? No, you don't want to cause strife in your friendship. But now imagine what happens when that privacy is broken. A company is giving over your information to the Federal Reserve. So I know this was a really long rant, but I really wanted to set up how important this is. And the article does a good job too. But it's one of those things where maybe a little bit more personal touch could really highlight where this could go in the future. So let's describe what FedNow is and what it could be in the future. Quote, seamless money transfers, state-of-the-art security and tracking features, a hassle-free payment service backed by the Fed, no annoying third-party systems. What's not to love about the Federal Reserve's new FedNow service? Quite a lot, actually. Despite the aforementioned conveniences being part of the FedNow insured business or bank, will only give the federal government more power over your personal finances. As a consumer, you have little say, if any, in this program's rollout. If your bank opts in, you do too. That means that your bank information and monetary transactions will be made available to and facilitated by the FedNow system. No, it's and or buts about it. This could make heightened federal surveillance on civilians and businesses a very real possibility down the road, end quote. And another reason that this is probably going to resonate with a certain part of the population is because you're looking at places like Canada. That's probably the one that a lot of people have heard about, where the Trudeau government actually limited the amount of funds that could be given to each participant from these kind of give fund go or these GoFundMe campaigns. They actually limited the amount of access people had to certain bank accounts. They were technically debanking them. So when you see things like this, when you see the federal government getting involved and telling banks to do something, and the banks kind of just bend over and say, oh, hey, well, we need them to bail us out if we are a little bit over leveraged and something goes wrong in a financial crisis, or we know that they can make our lives hard because of regulations and things like this, then, you know, it, it's scary to think about that the Fed's getting ever more involved in the banking system. And also for my libertarians out there, guess what this probably means? They don't want their FedNow network to be failing. They don't want certain people to not have access to their money. It's going to be backed by the security and full faith of the federal service of the Fed Reserve. So then guess what happens when these banks fail? They're either going to get bailed out directly because they can't have that infrastructure loss. They can't have people not have access to the FedNow system. But also they could just, in theory, absorb their assets because they're already working with the FedNow system. They could you know, dissolve them, 
bring them under management or sell them off. And they, they'd be all more the happy to do this because they're already so entangled business-wise and they're already crucial to ensuring that their FedNow program works. So this further entanglement of big banks and the United States, especially the Federal Reserve, is something that we need to be very, very wary of. There are two reasons for it, in my opinion. You have the very, hey, let them fail view. Don't get too involved. Don't have too many restrictions or put in too many regulations on the bank. That's the more libertarian side. And then the more conservative side that you would probably hear from some Republicans is, what if the government doesn't agree with you? I actually take that back. You would hear that from some liberals too. What if a Republican administration gets in and they don't like certain nonprofits that are have their bank accounts at Wells Fargo? Maybe they monitor their transactions to see if they're violating their tax their, their tax status really, really closely in order to shut them down. You could see how this is a club that could be wielded by the federal government in order to affect their will. And they already have the power of coercion. That is the sole thing that we give to the government by being citizens. They have a police force, essentially, with the FBI. They have the power, which we have given them, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but sometimes it can come back to bite us in the butt that they have the power to coerce us by enforcing the laws that they pass. So all of this really lines up that it doesn't have to be a libertarian issue, it doesn't have to be a liberal issue, it doesn't have to be a conservative issue. It is an overreach of government. It is government getting too involved in the system of our everyday lives. And I think it really speaks to the fact that they are willing to roll out a centralized digital banking currency. And this is one way of doing it. They're saying, hey, banks, you know what? Let's start the FedNow program. Let's make it easier to transfer cash. And eventually, when we have the digital currency of the United States up and running, then it'll be even easier to implement, which means they'll have even more control over what you could do. And this is just a hypothetical, but imagine they ban the use of digital currency to buy certain unhealthy products. You can't use your digital currency to buy a Big Mac from McDonald's because, oh, well, it has too much cholesterol. It could lead to obesity in certain people, and we don't necessarily want to promote the sale of those certain items. Once again, it's hyperbole, and it's just an example, but this is a real fear that you should be thinking over. The only way to prevent the government from having direct control over your life is to be active because federal government, their prerogative is to protect the safety, they feel as though their prerogative is to protect the safety of their, and lives of their citizens. But in order to do that, they have to get more involved in their citizens' lives. The only way to push back is to know what they're doing and speak up when you think it is a violation of your privacy. Now, if you're totally okay with the conveniences and you do the cost-benefit analysis and you're like, yeah, I have no problem with the federal government looking through my transactions and you know when it's weighed up against all the conveniences that it brings, then sure, I'll definitely not have a problem with going to the FedNow system. That is the beautiful thing about our system. You can say whatever you want. You can have any opinion you want. You can give up any liberty that you want in order to benefit you and provide you more security and less risk in your life. But I will tell you now that eventually it will go too far. Eventually there will be a line where you're not okay with it, and it may not even be too far down the road. You may just disagree very fervently with some other people who are arguing the opposite. And just be aware of these sort of things. Be aware of where they can lead. And before we're done with this article, I want to talk about a similar program that's implemented in the EU to give you a really stark and clear example 
of what could go on here. Quote, let's take a look at the European Union's very real crackdown on cash. In an attempt to quell money laundering operations and crypto scams, Brussels has passed new anti-money laundering laws, which effectively ban European citizens from making cash payments over 7,000 euros and crypto asset transfers of over 1,000 euros. The EU justifies the dictates, saying that it protects against black market transactions using cash as an untraceable currency. So you see what I, I'm going to pause here. There's the fear that there's going to be untraceable currency, that they can't crack down on these certain behaviors that are not good for society. And there's definitely an argument there that they're not good for society. But in the shutting down of these programs or in the attempt to secure the safety of their citizens and limit the amount of this bad, these bad actors, they are directly infringing upon the rights of their citizens. What if you wanted to put down a 10,000 euro down payment on a car, perhaps? Maybe you want to get a lot of the payment done up front. You've been saving up for, for a while. Would this directly violate this rule? And what if you wanted to transfer some cryptocurrency to your nephew or to your brother for their birthday or for Christmas? Well, you can't transfer over a thousand now because that could be seen as money laundering or part of a crypto scheme. So they're directly infringing upon the freedoms of their people. They're limiting the amount of money that they can send back and forth, the amount of crypto assets. So they're basically restricting the populace and saying, no, you don't need to buy anything over this amount. There's no reasonable reason to do it unless you're money laundering. That's absolutely insane. And I'm not saying that it's insane with the amount, the limits that they put on it. I'm saying it's insane in principle alone. You cannot tell me what to do with my money, period, full stop. If I want to go out and buy 10 cows at the local, I know it's a weird example, but if you want to buy 10 cows at the local auction, and you have to put down $8,000 to buy all of them, then there shouldn't be a problem with that. Maybe you want to start a, a farm. Maybe you want to have a few stakes down the road when these heifers have matured. Maybe you want the ability to make your own milk. Who knows? All of these things could be directly impacted by the government having the ability to say, no, you can't spend over this certain amount of cash. And this is where this incremental control and invasion of the citizens' privacy leads. How long is it before the Fed says, oh, well, we have access to all these bank records now, and we see that a lot of people, a lot of people are giving large crypto gifts from their accounts to their family, and we don't necessarily like that. We, we want them to use hard-earned cash, or maybe they have the inverse problem. Maybe they say too many people are giving cash gifts, and people are spending in ways that we don't necessarily like, or even just there's a whole bunch of money in savings accounts that aren't being used. Therefore, they're not stimulating the economy. We want to encourage people to do this. So we're going to use this data that we have to say, okay, we know how many people are keeping money just sitting in their bank account. We know that they're only spending on certain things. We're going to create a bill that incentivizes or even mandates that people spend a certain amount of money if they're using the FedNow program in order to keep it solvent. There are lots of workarounds here, and there are lots of clever people in Washington that will find a way to encroach upon your freedoms. And not out of a bad thing. I mean, it is a good thing to, at some points, to stimulate the economy by encouraging spending. The Fed and the U.S. government has done this 
many a times. But the more wealth of information they have and understanding of what the populace does, wants, and uses their money for will allow them to better coerce us into certain behaviors. So it's just something that came up and I read the other day and I was just kind of outraged that they're honestly going with it and because it is my bank. Uh, Wells Fargo, if for some reason you're listening to this, I may be transferring bank soon. I am genuinely considering it if there's not a lot of pushback on this Fed now program. All right, let's jump to our second article that comes from Counterpunch. New stats, same story. Our rich are making. So let's talk about some of the stats really quickly. Let's just jump straight into what they're talking about here because me giving a preface as long as the last one won't necessarily do much to really highlight what's going on here. Quote, some of our best annual stats on our global super rich have been coming out over the recent years from the Swiss banking giant Credit Suisse. But the fabled 167-year-old institution stumbled royally during the pandemic and earlier this year ending up property of its Swiss rival, UBS. UBS fortunately has opted to continue Credit Suisse's annual global wealth report tradition. And the 2023 edition, covering data through 2022, has just appeared. As usual, the annual report's release has enjoyed substantial media coverage worldwide, especially in the business press. Most of all, the latest coverage has generally emphasized the news in the 2023 report's opening lines. As typical headlines go from Bloomberg, it reads, Global wealth fell last year for the first time since 2008. Wealth per global adult and the new wealth report does indeed show fell by 3.6% in 2022. But most of that decline, the report goes on to add, came from the appreciation of the U.S. dollar against many other currencies. Hold those exchange rates constant and the story changes. Wealth per adult increased by 2.2%. So, and, and that's the end of the quote, by the way. So, hey, I mean, that sounds like a good thing. You know, wealth increased by 2.2% if you hold the exchange rates constant, which is not the reality we live in. A lot of people's euros and a lot of people's yen and these other currencies have fallen in value compared to the U.S. dollar. So, therefore, you know, a lot of people are actually experiencing less buying power. So that that's the reality we live in. But if we're to take their extrapolation that if the exchange rate were to hold constant, then there's an increase of 2.2%. That's good. We want overall wealth to grow. But why does Counterpunch have an issue with this? Why does Counterpunch have that that snazzy headline, new stats, same story? It's because guess where a lot of that wealth is going or where a lot of that wealth is residing? It's residing in the top 1 to 10, 10 to 1%. And that is something that Counterpunch is not necessarily okay with. That's something that when I hear it, it causes me to pause and really think over, is that okay that the top 10 to 1% are getting a lot more of the income? Let me ask you this question. If you're a CEO of Amazon and you're making strategic decisions about where to open new plants, where to add new jobs, where to export your manufacturing, these are high-stakes questions, high-stakes decisions that need a lot of expertise. If they go wrong, then Amazon can lose millions upon millions of dollars. If they go right, then Amazon can make millions of millions of dollars. So who is more valuable? 
the person making those decisions or their secretary, the person making sure that all the communications get out to the right people and confirming some of those activities. And then my next question down from there is, who's more important in that process? This person, the secretary, who's making all those calls, which you could argue is still a very valuable job, not necessarily making decisions, not necessarily being responsible for all of the possible risk involved, but still relatively important, or the worker that could be replaced immediately. So when Counterpunch gets really mad that workers aren't being valued properly, they're always, or they're talking about the lower 50% of the population that doesn't necessarily make these huge, wealthy contributions to the Amazon company. It's because they frame it as, well, the company can't operate without workers. And this is very, very true. Without the workers, the company wouldn't operate. Without the loyal workers who stick around, who know the operation, but they get paid more as they come in. The really baseline workers that aren't necessarily getting the salary that Counterpunch would probably argue that is necessary, or even just the pay, because they're probably not salary employees, that is necessary. A lot of those employees are replaceable. And this is supply and demand. If there's a large supply of people that can do the job and the demand is not necessarily really, really far up there, then you're going to get lower wages because they have a wealth of supply. They have lots of alternative options. If Billy Bob Joe says, oh, well, $17 isn't enough for me to work at that Amazon factory and break my back, there's probably somebody else down the road that is willing to take that $17 to get out of their hard position. How many Jeff Bezoses are there? How many people with that wealth of knowledge and experience are out there that can do his job and make effective decisions and is willing to take on the risk? Not many. The demand for these type of CEOs and executives is high, and the supply is low. That's why they get paid more money, and that's why you see the wealthy getting even richer because they, one, have, they do have an incumbent advantage because they've been a part of these wealthier circles, because they've interacted with all these people, they have these networks and these connections, they are able to get better jobs. And then because of those better jobs, they have more experience in those fields. Yes, there is no doubt a disparity in the type of people that can get these jobs in the very beginning who come out of college or who come out of particular families. They have an advantage because of the status that they hold in society. But that doesn't mean that the valuable decisions that they make do not actually deserve to be paid a high salary. And I think this is something that we always lose sight of. There's always this idea that, hey, these people are getting paid too much. The company, you know, it, it could operate without Jeff Bezos at the top. You could just get some other executive making strategic decisions, but it can't operate without the worker, which is true. Not The company can't operate without either of those people, and I'm go, presenting a counterfactual. The company cannot operate without the CEO, and it needs to be a skilled, well-paid CEO so they stay around and feel invested in the company, but they also need that worker who is loyal, who's willing to move up in the company, who is willing to put in the time and the effort. Both are necessary for the company to survive and to thrive, but who's more replaceable? That's what you ask yourself. When you go into the store and you see that there's a shortage on eggs, what do you notice about the egg prices? The egg prices go up. What happens when you go to the store and there is a shortage on pork or beef? 
uh, the price of the beef and the pork in the store goes up because more companies like Walmart, Target, they're fighting over more limited resources. So in order to get those resources, they have to pay a little bit higher. And then they pass those costs on to the consumer as well. The same thing of supply and demand goes into the equation for these executives who are getting paid lots of money and also goes into effect for the workers who are not getting paid nearly as much. So I think the framing of this story was very, you know, 1% versus the bottom 50% at the very beginning. And I think that we need to dispel that because, or at least propose a counterfactual, propose a different view of how things operate in order to understand why the top 10 to 1% is gaining. Now, of course, there are freeloaders. There are people who don't add value to companies. There are people who are executives who should not be executives. Get them out. Stop paying them so much. They don't deserve to be there. And maybe there should be some more internal promotion from people who have worked at these large companies for a long time, who have a better understanding, who work their way up from the working in the factory to being a field manager to being a distribution manager to so on and so forth. But overall, there is still the laws of supply and demand, and we can't negate them. Now, let's be clear. There are obviously a lot of counterpoints that people will probably bring up. Oh, well, you can actually strengthen some of the workers by adding unions, so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, the laws of supply and demand still exist. And those things that interrupt that system, they're not necessarily proving against supply and demand. They are completely external factors. So if you want to bring up one of those counterfactuals, one of those counterarguments, throw it in the comment section. I'd love to have a further in-depth conversation with you down there. So I want to talk about one other statistic that comes out of this, which is something that is a little bit more concerning and is a little bit less pointing to the class divide and really breaking it up by class and trying to sow a little bit less derision. This is just a concerning fact to me. Quote, the latest Credit Suisse numbers totally undercut that claim. In other developed nations, societies with rich holdings significantly smaller shares of their national wealth than in the United States, typical people have seen substantial greater growth rates in their personal wealth. Back in the year 2000, the typical American had a net worth of $46,000. The typical net worth of France adults that year was $51,000. By the end of 2022, the typical French adult held around $145,000 in personal wealth. The typical median American U.S. wealth last year was just 107000 Over the same two-decade plus span, the typical Dutch median net worth jumped from 44000 to 120000 The typical Canadian from 37000 to 134000 And the spectacle wealth of America's wealthy, in other words, is paying no great dividends for the average American. Those dividends are funneled instead to the top of the U.S. economic ladder, end quote. So this is where we have a little bit further in-depth conversation and, or I take that back, this is where we have a really quick breeze over of why this is concerning to me. It's because as we've seen the median wealth go up, as we've seen across the world, a whole bunch of different nations that are a little bit more well-off, a little bit more developed, have advanced economies, We've seen that their average population income is going up. This means that the low end of the spectrum is weighing down the top end less. And we're not actually seeing that trend to the same degree. Of course, I mean, a jump from 45 or 46,000 
to 107,000 is, you know, it's a big jump over the course of 23 years. There's no doubt about that. But it doesn't necessarily hold up to all these other nations. Now, France is a little bit tricky because if you were to do it as a percentage, they were already making more in about 4,000 more in 2000, and they're making about 32,000 more in the early years of 2022. So, you know, statistically, if you do it as a percentage, it's not as drastic. The one that's really interesting is Canadians, which are, they were below us in 2000 with 37,000, and now they're way above us at 143,000 for the average Canadian adult when it comes to their assets and their net worth. So that, that one's a little bit concerning for sure. And the reason that I think that this part of the conversation is more important to have is because as we see economic expansion, we do want it to help not just the top 1%. We want it to help everybody in the economy. And don't get me wrong, a rising tide does raise all boats. If you went to somebody that was below the poverty line in 2000 and you came to them or someone in a similar situation now, their standard of living is probably higher. They probably have more benefits. They probably have a higher overall net worth. But compared to the rate of inflation that has occurred in all the prices of products, it doesn't necessarily give them much more buying power. So this is something that we need to address. I don't necessarily know how to address all of it. I don't think that distribution is the way to go about it. Maybe having more programs that allow these people to really step up, that maybe we have a deferment program where you can throw a little bit more money away into a savings account through your company. Maybe we should encourage companies to have these sort of matching plans that I know some small businesses do have for 401ks or IRAs so that these citizens, when they get a little bit older and they get into retirement, they can actually realize some of those layaways and some of the matching and those extra funds that the company was able to give to them. Maybe we should have things like that that actually bring up the lower end because there is a set amount of money that you can put into a Roth IRA. 401k is a little bit different. But imagine if a company had a matching program for a Roth IRA. That would really disproportionately benefit the lower end of the spectrum because you can only put 6500 away in a Roth IRA. To a millionaire, it's the exact same amount as the poor person. They can only put away 6500 But that 6500 is a huge chunk of change for the person that is less well-off and not so much for the millionaire. And that extra doubling of their contribution by their employer will have a larger impact for the person who is in less of a good position than the multimillionaire. And maybe this can help build a little bit more generational wealth and really secure people as they get older. And, you know, that's not an end-all, be-all solution because not everybody will work for these type of companies that will encourage these sort of things. But it is an interesting proposal that I would see how far we could bear it out. All right, let's jump to our last article that comes from the New York Times. I refuse the graceful slip into cultural irrelevance. And to be honest, I don't really want to read any of these quotes because it's really more of a narrative story. And it's kind of hard to just pick up anywhere randomly throughout what she's saying. But what the author really does talk about is how the millennial generation, they grew up believing that they were the hot stuff. They were the top, the cream of the crop. And they learned how to use this idea that, hey, we are the millennials. We have a unique perspective. We grew up in this digital age. We have a deep understanding of online culture. And they used it to 
leveraged their way into positions and jobs with people who were a little bit older and were afraid that maybe they were a bit behind the times. But now this author talks about how they're kind of slipping into irrelevance. They're not necessarily keeping up with all the latest trends. They don't have all the time. They're working. They don't have time to just sit on social media and fully absorb everything that the younger generation, Gen Z, is doing. They don't necessarily have the energy or necessarily understand some of the trends. So this millennial perspective is kind of slipping away. And this author's overall point is that, hey, us millennials, we were really relevant. We feel as though we're important, but we're starting to be a little bit less important and a little bit less influential. I mean, they will run the government here in a few years. Some of them are already in the government. So, of course, they're not fully gone. They'll be able to impose their values and their views. But when it comes to being trendy and cool, they are no longer that. And this author just says, I, I refuse to accept it. And this is something that I think is interesting. Do you go with the times? Do you try to keep being cool? Do you try to keep being hip, but necessarily give up some of your millennial identity, give up some of the trends or values or aspects of your millennial millennial identity in order to fit in? Or do you stay strong to the way that you grew up, the things that you think are cool, the values that you have, and you know try to, I don't want to say impose them, but keep them thriving and let the next generation do its thing without interfering? It's a very interesting question, and a lot of people are probably facing that as millennials are reaching that point where they are middle-aged and they don't know whether or not their viewpoints are okay anymore. They don't necessarily know if the world that they grew up in is still the one that we experience here today. And Gen Z is starting to realize how much power they have, and they don't necessarily love the millennials, in my opinion. This is my opinion solely. I haven't talked to a lot of people about this, but... I feel as though we don't really like the millennials encroaching on our culture and trying to be too trendy. Hey, do your thing. Stay where you are and let us develop and not necessarily have you trickling down and trying to be that cool millennial mom or that cool millennial who's trying to catch up with all the the youngins. That's just my opinion on that one. I thought it was a very interesting article. I would definitely go give it a read. It She lays it out a lot better than I can, and there's a nice little narrative through line the way that she tells her story all right let's jump to our daily delight this one comes from spaces adorable snake hatches with smiley face on its scales so a lot of people have birthmarks but imagine having a smiley face permanently greeting the people that are walking behind you quote if you are squirmish around snakes this ball python might be one to change your mind thanks to its super unique and super cute smiley face pattern. This special snake is a ball python bred by Florida-based Brendan Nicholson, end quote. So, you know, this, this snake has a permanent smiley face on its scales, but it's also caused by a very rare disease. So it's even more rare that it came out in this pattern. So this is like a one in a million chance. Quote, the smiley face is apparently due to a genetic mutation called pied or pied bald, which causes large patches of white along the skin's snake's body, and pied is generally considered a type of partial lysosism, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos of this snake, or you want to read any of the other articles that we talked about today, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link on... Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, as well as Podvine, so you can listen on the go. And you can go over to Twitter. Yes, it is still Twitter. And follow the handle 
at your daily flip where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday, less scripted, just kind of going off the top of the head, talking about things that I think are interesting and having more fun off the cuff conversations versus really informative stuff here. All right. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.